This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. As we continue our series 2019, a look ahead to right now, we're going to look at natural disasters, which impacted the United States and so many other countries in 2018. Last year saw the deadliest and costliest wildfires in California history, while states like Florida, Virginia, and the Carolinas were hit by massive hurricanes and floods. Much of what occurred is linked by scientists to climate change. And these types of severe, event, severe events are expected to continue into the new year unless something is done to change that path. So how can we prepare? Howard Kunruther joins us in studio, co-director of the Risk Management and Decision Processes Center here at the Wharton School, as well as a professor of decision sciences and public policy. On the phone, we are joined by Bob Hartwig, who is a clinical associate professor of finance and co-director of the Risk and Uncertainty Management Center at the University of South Carolina's Moore School of Business. And also joining us, uh, Jay Keith Gillis, who's a professor and dean emeritus of the College of Natural Resources at the University of California at Berkeley. Howard, great seeing you again. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Dan, and nice to be with you. Bob, Keith, great to have you both with us. Thank you both. Glad to be Glad here. To be here. Keith, I, let's put this into perspective first because of the damage that was done there in California from the wildfires. The campfire in Northern California was devastating. But when you look at that, all of the damage was done. How long are we looking for that area to recover fully from the damage done? As a community, I would say at least a decade. Uh, the environmental damage uh, would be less apparent in uh, perhaps 20 years. Um, but, yeah, it's it's a long, slow process. And uh, all of the disasters we had in the last couple of years means rebuilding is going to be even slower and more expensive. Bob, how do you... How do you correlate the same type of question with all of the, the devastation from the hurricanes that the South has had to deal with over the last few years? Uh, well, I think the South is um, quite accustomed to dealing with, with hurricanes. Um, we've been dealing with really severe hurricanes uh, since the early 1990s and even, even before then. And so I think that to some extent the, the, the South has had, the Southeast in particular in Texas, uh, as well, and even the Northeast of the United States has had uh, some uh, uh, practice, let's say, unfortunately, with this over the past several decades. So it is the case that um, the economies, at any rate, uh, in these areas tend to bounce back uh, relatively quickly. Um, uh, the, the major concern is when they bounce back, do they bounce back in a smart way? In other words, in a way that makes them more resilient. Uh, in face of the absolute certainty that events like these will be occurring um, in the future, uh, if not with increased frequency, potentially with increased severity. So uh, there are a lot of issues related to coastal exposures that, that go beyond, of course, uh, just the hurricanes themselves. There's there's sea level rise um, and those sorts of things uh, that are compounding the problem. And, and then, of course, Howard, there is also the most recent the, what happened in Indonesia with the uh, with the with the earthquake and then the tsunami that followed a afterwards and the damage that's done there. And I'll have you talk about that from this perspective: is how you correlate the recovery in a country like Indonesia, which may not have the same types of resources that are here in the United States. No, I think that's a very important point, uh, Dan. We do have a this is a global problem. 
and we're going to be facing that in a way that uh, is really uh, unprecedented with respect to the issues of climate change and sea level rise that Bob was referring to a few minutes ago in respect to hurricanes in the United States. And so we have a real challenge, I think, in the context of adapting to these things now, taking steps where people generally don't want to take these steps for a lot of good reasons. They, you know, it's uncomfortable to think about these things. But more than that, it's also expensive if they have to take steps. And I'm not just talking about individuals, talking about communities. Yeah. Uh, you have a community like Miami that has to really worry about what's going to happen to the, to that community, to that city uh, in the future, uh, but maybe not next year. And, they, and steps have to be taken now, and individuals have to take steps. Bob, I would think that's uh, obviously one of the uh, the cases out in California there in, in the wake of the wildfires. And it, it's not just the people. It's not just the government, uh, the local government. But I would think it's it's also the business community as well. Um, I think you might have went to wildfires. I think you might have uh, been talking to Keith about that one. Right. right? Oh, I'm yeah, sorry, Keith. Sorry, I'm sorry. I'm My bad. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the business community is trying to figure out how to adapt on this, and part of the problem is um, the the pattern of business in much of California has been changing. As you know, you get regional uh, uh, sort of centers evolving, and so of the smaller towns have seen a lot of population growth, but a lot of the business community has uh, moved into sort of regional centers like like Reading. So it's, it's a complex and evolving business community as well. I, I wanted to say one thing, though, about um, the comment that was just made about uh, natural hazards and the damage in some of these countries like Indonesia is one of the threads in this research uh, that I found rather interesting and that some of my colleagues and I have done some work on in Central America was Interestingly enough, uh, some of the poorer countries in the world, their infrastructure um, is very vulnerable, but it's not very good infrastructure. And some of the middle-income countries, we did one case study in Costa Rica as a good example, um, their infrastructure is far more valuable, but the institutions to deal with the impact of natural hazards damaging their infrastructure haven't evolved at the pace that some of these middle-income countries have increased sort of their, their stock of uh, economic capital in the form of roads, bridges, uh, businesses. And so it is interesting. There's this perhaps area of vulnerability in the middle-income countries that is not apparent when you look at the devastation in a country with very poor uh, infrastructure uh, immediately after the incident. So then where would you put Puerto Rico in, in that uh, instance, Keith, when you're talking about what, what that uh, country has had to try and come back from in the last couple of years? You took it right home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was going to say a similar thing Port, uh, in re relation to the comment you just raised. Hurricane Maria did enormous amounts of damage. Haiti has a similar problem, and I think Keith was also referring to other places. And, and Indonesia has an enormous flood problem as well as an earthquake problem, uh, and it hasn't really dealt with it. But I also um, wanted to come back to the California wildfire question that you were raising a moment ago to Keith. And I think one of the real challenges that, uh, that one California faces, other 
other states as well, but mostly California right now because they've had most of the damage, is how they're going to prepare and mitigate these wildfires. And the, the business community has to be concerned about that. Uh, insurers are very concerned about that, and Bob may want to comment on that also, uh, in the sense that they are really now restricting the amount of coverage that they're giving uh, to homeowners in these areas. And so what we really are facing here with California wildfires and all natural disasters is how do we prepare now? How do you mitigate wildfires in the future? What's the role of the utilities? What's yeah. the role of other groups? And our risk center is working on that right now. So it's center of our attention with respect to how one can actually tie the mitigation aspect to the recovery aspect and who's going to pay for this. And this is going to affect businesses, but it's going to affect primarily the residences. And as Keith indicated, there's an enormous problem with respect to rebuilding and recovery in places uh, like where the campfire hit. Uh, so we do have a challenge, and we need to have public-private partnerships to deal with that. Bob, where, where, what are you seeing in the, in the South in regards to that specifically? Well, um, again, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll separate the discussion about the South and then California. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it has been the case that in the Southeast and in places like Texas and, again, coastal parts of New England, um, we have seen pretty much an inexorable increase uh, in the cost of property insurance uh, for the yeah. better part of three decades. And it's likely to continue. And um, uh, uh, insurers in these areas make better use of reinsurance, um, so the risk is spread around the world. A very good break for insurers and, uh, and, um, and in fact, consumers of insurance is the fact that the price of reinsurance uh, is uh, relatively uh, low right now by historical standards, and there's ample capacity around the world, both from traditional reinsurance and capital markets. Uh, this is also the case in California. I would say um, California is um, in earlier stages of what is likely to be a multi-decade increase uh, in the cost of, of property insurance there. Uh, uh, related to wildfire, at least in some uh, particular areas of the state. It's, it's very fortunate that the state has not had uh, a major earthquake in literally 25 years. Uh, I think it was back in 1994, so it was about 25 years ago, the last major uh, Northridge earthquake at that time. So they really don't need to add that yeah. insult to the injury. Um, but uh, it's, it's a long-term adjustment process. And uh, insurers will, um, uh, you know, Howard mentioned, insurers uh, scaling back, uh, but at the same time, there will be other insurers that come in because they see an opportunity. What California needs to do, and perhaps other states as well, in addition to make uh, properties um, through zoning ordinances and building codes and so forth, uh, more re resilient um, to, to wildfires, is to not repeat some of the mistakes of the past. Um, in the wake of the catastrophic hurricanes in places like Florida, in particular, 2005, uh, Katrina, Rita, Wilma, other storms, the state's knee-jerk reaction was to basically say, you insurers, we do not care how much money you lost over the past couple of years, we're going to freeze your rates. Um, and uh, Economics 101 suggests that uh, that's ultimately going to result in a, uh, a reduction of capacity available to consumers. And that's exactly what happened. And the state itself wound up having to become the largest home insurer uh, in the state of Florida and one of the largest in the country. And uh, had another major event happened within a few years of that, the state of Florida itself could have potentially gone bankrupt. So uh, California has to avoid the, the kind of uh, knee-jerk reactions and the mistakes that places like Florida and, to a lesser degree, Louisiana made in the wake of major storms uh, about 15 years ago. Keith, your thoughts? 
Oh, it's absolutely true. And while the state is the insurer of last resort uh, here, um, that's not a position you actually want the state to be in. You'd rather have the markets functioning well here. Um, And I think for us, it's not just having insurance industry uh, where it's uh, both encouraged or (laughs) more strongly perhaps than encouraged to have a strong feedback loop between community action or individual action and rate setting uh, with, you know, um, some guarantee that people can have access to the service without the the state stepping into a role that it probably is not going to be as effective in. But it means we also, as Californians, have to treat the underlying problems, not just the symptoms. Uh, The politics of whether or not to invest in community planning versus hiring more firefighters and more, you know, air resources to, to combat uh, are playing out in the state right now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and from my point of view, uh, building codes, zoning, insurance reform, uh, and a lot of attention not on the uh, uh, building losses side, but on the human safety issue on evacuation planning and warning systems um, really needs to be the top priority for California. Howard? Well, let me just uh, follow up on the very important points that Bob uh, and Keith just made with respect to the challenges, not only with respect to insurance, but with respect to other aspects like the public-private partnerships with building codes and uh, and the evacuation that Keith was mentioning. I think that one of the, the, the real challenges in this whole area is the balance between setting insur- – and I'll focus on insurance for the moment, but I think it's a broad issue – setting insurance premiums that reflect risk, which is exactly what Bob was referring to, right. critically important for the private sector to play a key role here. But at the same time, to try to deal with the affordability issue and the, the challenges of dealing with low-income people who are living in hazard-prone areas, if the premiums go up to a very high levels, as Bob was indicating, and that's the evidence that all of us have seen, and Bob and I have worked together on this over the years, so it's something that I think we share a very common feeling about all of this. You're going to find that the low-income people are going to be really in a position where they say, I can't afford sure. to, to do these things, and we have to figure that out. I don't want to get into that per se right now. but just to put it on the table. The one point I'd want to make that Bob was referring to uh, with respect to earthquakes is a very serious one in California. I mean, the wildfires are clearly here now. If we have an earthquake that occurs in a major um, metropolitan area in the San Francisco or Los Angeles area over the course of the next year or two, we're going to find that almost no one has insurance. Uh, Less than 10 percent of the people have earthquake insurance. It's a public sector. The California Earthquake Authority handles that. Uh, Most people feel that they don't need it or don't want it. And, of course, they forget that they have had an earthquake because there hasn't been one serious one since Northridge. And so you're going to be faced with an amazingly challenging problem for many of these residents in terms of their recovery process if they really have buildings destroyed. And the low-income people are going to be particularly hurt. So I think that there are real issues. California Earthquake Authority is concerned about that, as as are other groups. And certainly it's things that uh, one has to pay attention to. Keith, I find it interesting just off of those comments from Howard that, you know, you would have people that would live in some of these areas and would be going without earthquake insurance, even though that, as has been mentioned, we haven't had a significant earthquake in 20 to 25 years. 
it, you would think that it, California might be the one state where it's almost an automatic to have that type of insurance. You would think so, but, you know, the politics of coverage for natural hazards are such that um, while it's fairly easy as the markets work to require it for uh you can require coverage for certain hazards as a function of getting a mortgage. But if you're already owning <laughs> the home you're in, your ability to force some sort of coverage is very low. Um, and this is the, the low income uh, household problem is particularly acute with respect to the fire issues uh, in that some of the areas of rural California um, that have been hardest hit by fires in California uh, were areas that had some of the most fragile households on a financial basis uh, in the state. Uh, the campfire was a little different in that this was a growth area, um, but still the long-term residents in some of these areas, they, they, they're not taking out a mortgage. They're already in housing, which may be rental housing, uh, right. so it's not their responsibility. Um, but the earthquake issues do worry me a great deal, um, and uh, I got to admit that at first when I moved out here, I was a little blasé because the Tokyo area is one of the places I grew up, and I was pretty used to shaking about. Um, but uh, the the long-term risk, despite the visuals of the fires in California to our economy of the earthquake uh, problem here is is fabulous, and I will have retired from Berkeley soon without having ever been in a building with a seismic rating on the campus of better than poor. Well, so that, we're not that prepared for that risk either. Well, then let me ask you this then, and obviously this plays on to kind of the, the, the public-private partnership, but more so uh, on, the, uh, on the public sector, is what what needs to be done, in your opinion, there in California to deal with a variety of these issues and to make sure that people are protected, but also it, it, it's an affordable process as well, Keith? I think uh, part of the big fight we're going to have is finding a balance uh, between local and state authority with respect to issues like zoning and building codes. Uh, the, the way the balance of power works there, um, a lot of those issues are really fundamentally fought out uh, at a city or county level. And some of these yeah. issues have such a, a state interest that uh, we may need to give more guidance uh, from the state level to what is adequate natural hazards policy at a local level. That's not going to be easy. Uh, and I think anyone in the, um, uh, the business world understands that the balance of power on many development issues is, is held quite locally. Howard? Well, let, let me make a comment on the insurance side. I agree with Keith that building codes and all of those have the challenges. They're local. Often local communities may have their own building codes. But on insurance, I think that one of the real challenges here is that banks have not required earthquake insurance as a condition for a mortgage. Uh, if, they, if they did that, and, and part of it is a competitive uh, question, and Bob may want to comment on this as well, uh, in the sense that um, if one bank requires it, uh, the homeowner 
homeowner may go to another bank that doesn't require it because they don't sure. really want the insurance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think we really have a challenge here. And one of the areas that uh, we're exploring now and that the industry is looking at, although not fav- necessarily favorably, but uh, but it's a possibility, is start at t- uh, having a more whole all homeowners insurance policy where right. floods would be incorporated as right. part of that. And the private sector is now moving in that direction by adding flood on to homeowners in a small amount in Florida particularly, but also adding earthquake on and having a comprehensive all homeowners policy that is required. Now, that's a nice idea in theory. Insurers are going to say there's a problem here, but one could move in that direction and banks would then have to require it. But it would be an interesting way to go, especially considering that the knowledge of the areas where they would be selling these types of policies is obviously there, and it's obviously accessible. So you would think it wouldn't be that much of a, of a significant issue to try and put those types of policies together, Howard. The question would be, again, going back to the affordability, and how much does, say, an earthquake policy add on to the traditional well, homeowner's policy well, to begin with? That's exactly right. And you also have state regulators that would have to let the insurers charge premiums that reflect risk and at the same time try to deal with the affordability issue in other ways, uh, possibly through public-private partnerships with the state or the federal government helping low-income people in some fashion. But without the regulators actually letting go on that, it's really a non-starter because no insurer is going to want to add earthquake insurance onto a policy and be forced to charge a very low premium right. in areas where there really is a severe earthquake risk. And I don't know well, whether... Yeah. And that works for other natural hazards as well. Just defining the area where the risk is higher um, is inherently political. When we were relying on local governments in California to define the areas of very high fire uh, uh, hazard, we found that many of the maps we produced in the state had straight lines of the zones, and those straight lines were county lines. (laughs) And so you could go from a very high fire hazard step over an imaginary line, which was in a county line, and suddenly be in a, a, a much lower hazard. Yeah, and so a- we had to solve that by moving that mapping function up a level. Yeah, um, it, it, it might come as a surprise to some people that these, these hazard risk maps uh, are not purely based on science, but sometimes uh, begin to uh, look somewhat like the, the gerrymandered uh, congressional district <laughs> map that you, yeah. you, might, you might see. Yeah. And, and that is because you're absolutely right, uh, that local politicians will step in and object that their community uh, has been designated in, for instance, in the southeast, a very high hazard flood zone, for instance. Mm-hmm. even though it's, it's uh, routinely been found to be underwater <laughs> parts yeah. of the community. So, um, but because, as, as, you, as you mentioned, it does increase the cost of, uh, of, of, of development. Um, it, but that said, uh, you know, we talked about uh, the very, very low penetration rates of earthquake insurance in, in California, and Howard's absolutely right. Um, if you trace what's happened, um, if you look at Northridge, which I believe was exactly 25 years ago this month, um, uh, we went from about 12%, 13% of homeowners having coverage at the time of Northridge to about 30% within a couple of years afterward. The message got out. Everybody yeah. needs earthquake coverage. And then uh, over time, uh, without another major event, what wound up happening is we're somewhere down, my understanding is I think maybe somewhere in the 10 to 12% uh, range in terms of property owners. So as Howard mentioned, virtually almost nobody is going to have the coverage, and it's going to be uh, just a 
truly phenomenal disaster from a recovery standpoint. Um, but even in parts of the country that are more pr prone to flooding, where flood coverage is available, where in, banks, in fact banks usually do enforce the purchase requirement, at least upon a first mortgage, um, it's a requirement if you have a federally backed mortgage. Um, it's uh, that that enforcement requirement is, uh, or the requirements often not enforced as mortgages trade hands over time. So, um, and uh, people wind up dropping the coverage oftentimes if they own the property outright. So uh, we have a huge vulnerability issue here. Although I would say, um, by no means is it as severe as the vulnerability with respect to uh, uh, to the, the 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 lack of coverage for earthquake in California. Howard, yeah, just to follow up on on your uh, po very important points, Bob, with respect to flood and also key. Point and your point on maps. Uh, FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, is now really rethinking the whole rating process for floods because of just that problem, yeah. uh, that they really don't have accurate rates, and they know that, and uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the agency is concerned about that. And they're also very concerned about the low penetration rate with respect to insurance, and that's where the private sector has been trying to play a role, but of only a minimal role right now in, in doing that. And, and I would think, Howard, that it would also come into play an area like around the Mississippi River, because if you go back 20 or 30 years, it was every year or two we would be hearing about a significant rise of the Mississippi over the banks. You saw a lot of properties that ended up being destroyed because of that. And I'm just thinking off the top of my head, I haven't heard of a significant issue around that area specifically, which leads me to believe that maybe you could be having the same issue there in terms of people dropping insurance. Well, no, absolutely. And in fact, uh, Florida is a good example because between 2004 and five, where there were eight hurricanes within the four in each of those years, there was no hurricane until Maria and Irma yeah. came. And so there was a real feeling. And certainly your point about the Mississippi is correct. And I think one of the, uh, the challenges, and Bob raised that point, is uh, that even though it may be required on a federally insured mortgage initially, uh, there's a lot of data, and we have uh, written about that, that a lot of people are canceling their policies, yeah. and it isn't being enforced. So you have a combination of even if it might be required, there are going to be a number of people who decide and have an escrow their premium and are canceling it. So we have a major problem here. Gentlemen, great having you on the show today. Uh, Bob, Keith, thank you for your time, and no doubt we'll talk to you at some point uh, during 2019. Thank you both. Yeah, Always a pleasure. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Howard, Howard, great seeing you. Thank you for coming in. Take care. Howard Conruther from here at the Wharton School, Bob Hartwig uh, from the University of South Carolina, and Keith Gillis from the, uh, Cal Berkeley joining us on the phone. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.